I'd like you to open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 12. Looks like we've got five people on on Zoom. So I'd like to pick up back where we were talking about last week. And let me uh, repeat a few things without getting bogged down about what we were ministering on in Hebrews chapter 12. For several weeks we've been talking about the high priestly ministry of Christ. And we brought out how that Paul speaks in Hebrews chapter 4 and other places, the book of Hebrews, that, that Jesus is our high priest currently interceding for us. Hebrews 4, 14, 7, 2.14, all of these have some reference to his high priestly ministry. So I raised the question back a few weeks ago, and that was, I said, if he is our advocate and intercessor currently, and he tells us in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 4 rather, to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, then why don't we always receive a 100% answer to our prayers, remember? So I put this screen up, and I ministered on it for a few weeks, and we gave you about seven different reasons that the scriptures speak of that can be hindrance to our, hindrances to our, to our prayers. I'm not going to go through that list again. If some are on and new, you can look at it, take a picture of it with your phone, look these things up. Last week we had an internet cut out, and... Uh, I apologized to Zachary on the phone for things going down, and he said, well, that's all right, Dad. You had that screen up, and I happened to copy it or get a picture of it. And so when you were off before we got back on, I spoke to the boys, Walter and Junior, and I said, he said I went through that list and talked to him about that for about 10 minutes. Now, when you came back on, we were able to keep going. So we, give, we gave you a list of reasons that the Bible speaks of us that may be reasons why we don't receive answers to our prayer. And then I moved into the next one, which is right here in Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to pick back up on this again, just for a little bit. And then I want to talk about the fear of the Lord. Because this will then lead into the next subject, main subject, that I want to get into, which is dealing with the subject of angels being ministering spirits on our behalf. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we gave an eighth reason as to why that maybe some don't receive answers to their prayers as they should. And I said it's because that they don't always understand the meaning of the chastening hand of the Lord. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul here is referring to in Hebrews chapter 12 when he's saying that, that we should not forget the exhortation of about God's chasing hand. He says in verse 5 of Hebrews 12, he says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him for the whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
And if you endure chastening, then God will deal with you as with a son, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you illegitimate and not sons. So if you're a Christian, then he says all, uh, all Christians are going to partake of the chastening hand of the Lord. So what exactly is then the chastening hand of the Lord? If we just limit it to severe punishment, does it mean that every single Christian is going to be severely punished of the Lord? No, that's obviously not the case. Now what the Bible speaks of in regard to the chastening hand of the Lord is him working with us as our parent, spiritual parent, to bring us into a deeper realm and maturity and growth. When we, we brought this out last week. When a person gets born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, water baptized, the, the three initial things that occur, um, usually at an evangelistic campaign or something like that, that that person now is God's child. But they're a baby. They're a baby in Christ. And as a baby in Christ, then the Lord takes care of them and he expects them, though, after a period of time to begin to mature and grow, just like you with your children. We've got babies here in the church. Elijah's the youngest one and Everly's the one right after him. And then we've got some others that are quite young. But a good parent is, is going to take care of them when they're infants and when they're babies, but they've got a goal and a purpose in mind, and that is they want them to learn to be more and more independent and dependent upon themselves. I mean, there's a, there's a place to whereby a good parent, after a child begins to grow up, that they're going to stop feeding them with a bottle, stop, stop feeding them with a spoon in their mouth. They're going to stop wiping their butts when they use the toilet. They're, they're going to tell them, no, you put your own clothes on now and teach them how to put their socks on and how to get dressed and hide, how to tie their shoes. I mean, they're not going to remain as an infantile uh, for years and years to come. The par good parent is going to say to them, no, it's time for you to grow up and, and do this on your own. And I believe that God, in the same way with us, he wants us to grow up and to, and to mature. If you look over to Deuteronomy chapter 32, he used this analogy um, with Israel, for example. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8, if you go over there, he speaks along the lines of what chastening involves. Chastening involves instruction. Chastening involves an admonition. Chastening involves rebuking. And chastening can also involve something more severe. If you look over to Deuteronomy 32, he talks about here him taking the children of Israel through the wilderness. Now, when they first came into the wilderness, he treated them like babies. He was right there to constantly being providing for them through a lot of supernatural miracles. But he wanted them to mature. He wanted them to grow. He wanted them to start using their own faith as they were going through the wilderness. And at that point, they let him down because they grumbled, complained, and on and on. 
So Moses here in what's called the Song of Moses, he's talking about the the past history. And I'll pick it up, for example, in verse 8. It says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, he separated the sons of Adam, and he set bounds of people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot in his of his inheritance. So he's talking about Jacob or Israel. He found him in a desert land, in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eyes, walking through the wilderness. Then he says, as an eagle stirs up her nest and flutters over her young and spreads abroad her wings, takes them and bears them upon her wings. Now, most believe that, that you, what you've got is an eagle and a fledgling, a baby that's in the nest. And at the point that that mother wants them to learn to fly on their own, she put, would put them on the tips of their wings. And the mother would take off, and that baby bird would be up there on it, and she would be encouraging it to put out its own wings and to learn to start to take off and to fly on its own. And so that's what he's saying here. He got, he got them stirred up, he got them going, and so he wanted them to take off on their own. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. And he made him ride on the high places of the earth that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flintly rock, butter of kine, milk of sheep, fat of lambs, rams and breeds of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys and wheat. And thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. But Jeshurun, which is Israel, waxed fat and kicked Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness, thou forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, provoked they him to anger, they sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to God whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom their father feared not, and of that rock that begat them thou art unmindful, and thou hast forgotten the God that has formed thee. And if you look at verse 20, he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their, what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom they have, and whom has no faith. I mean, God was dis- disappointed in them. He was angry with them. He had a purpose for them. That purpose was that after they were birthed, that they were going to mature and they were going to grow. And the same principle, and this could be referred to back to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, principle is true with us, that when we became born again, there was a purpose for being born again, and that was to be conformed into the image of Christ, to come into maturity and perfection. And all of this we have said over and over again. So chastening is a form of training. Chastening is where God wants to get us to mature and grow and yield to his voice. And he's very loving, merciful, long-suffering. We know that. But at the same time, he wants us to grow. And at some point in our life, if we just decide we're going to be stubborn, we don't want to do what he says, we want to pick and choose at the word of God, we want to not yield to the Holy Spirit as he leads us into a variety of trials and circumstances, 
then I believe just like you as a parent, for example, if you had a stubborn child that didn't want to mature and grow like they should, you're going to chasten them. Now that chastening can be in various forms. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, which we're not too far away from, it may be just simply in the form of instruction. Uh, the word for chastening in the Hebrew is yasar, and it means to instruct, to rebuke, and it includes to severely punish. I mean, in the New Testament, we could show you places like, uh, well, when we have communion in 1 Corinthians 11, remember we would read where Paul said that we should examine ourselves, and he says, for this cause, um, many are sickly and many sleep because there was quarreling and contention and fighting in their midst. They had a fornicator in 1 Corinthians where he was living in sin, and Paul said, turn that man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So chastening can be severe punishment. In, in my opinion, this is my opinion, I'm not God. In my opinion, that's very rare. I don't believe God just takes the life of his people. To me, that would be the last resort because the purpose of chastisement is for the purpose of getting that person to change and mature and grow. Well, if after a long period of time of trying to get that person to turn and to serve him, God may permit somebody to die so that he doesn't lose them eternally. But I think that's a very uncommon and a very rare thing. It's not something that you find in the Bible. If anything, you find places in the Bible where God puts limits on Satan and says that it's not to go. What? Are we on the right page? Because I'm having trouble seeing those scriptures up there. You are? Well, I don't see Deuteronomy. Maybe you're not. There you are, hon. So. Sorry. Okay. All right. Now, you remember what scripture I told you to turn to? Deuteronomy 21. Okay? And it's up there. All right. So in Deuteronomy chapter 21, listen to what he says here. What I'm, what I'm saying is that chastening can be in the form of instruction, admonishment. Paul spoke in Hebrews 12. He says, don't faint when thou art rebuked of him. And there is that other element. I'm not getting into that deeper side at this point. But anyways, in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 18, he speaks here, for example. He says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them. Now that word in the Hebrew is yasar. And it speaks of admonishing. And, you know, they, uh, they, they've been trying to deal with a rebellious child that doesn't want to change. Then he says to them, Then shall his father and mother lay hold of him and bring him out unto the elders of the city, unto the gate of the place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He won't obey our voice. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. And all the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he dies. So shall you put away evil among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. Wow. Thank God we're under grace. I, I might not be here if that was the case. Maybe some of you. I was not exactly the angel to my parents. But anyways, the point is that God was saying he takes very seriously stubbornness and refusal to listen to what he is trying to teach us in his word 
and change. God doesn't want us to be just a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. He's given many, many examples of that, like Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower and on and on, that he wants us to move forward. We're in a race. That's what Hebrews 12 talked about. We're in a race. We got a course. We got a path. We sang it here earlier that the finish line is right ahead. Give it all you got. How do you give it all you got? By singing loudly? No, by doing what he's teaching us in his word and not taking it lightly. And I'm not trying to say, and I put this up here, that I'm not trying to say that every time a Christian suffers in some way, that it's the chastening hand of the Lord. I'm not trying to say that. The whole book of Job gives us answers the question, why do, do the righteous suffer? I mean, some things are self-afflicted. Proverbs 26.2 says, for example, the curse causeless shall not come. The cause may just be ourself. Like Galatians 6.7, we reap what we sow. I mean, some people refuse to give up their, their bad habits, and it takes its toll. I mean, smoking is one. Drinking alcoholism is another. Drugs is another. I mean, that is something that we are, people are bringing upon themselves. I read of a story of a very famous actor, I won't mention his name, but he was one that had a severe back problem, and that led to him getting addicted to painkillers, and he was also a heavy chain smoker. They said he smoked three packs a day. That'd be 60 cigarettes a day. And that would be like, what, four or five per hour? I mean, I don't know if you had one in one hand and one in the other, but, but I don't know how you could do that. Four and five cigarettes an hour, and that'd be constant. If the guy slept, it'd be maybe six or whatever. But the point is, he died at 52 years of age from emphysema, showed a picture of him with tubes and hoses, nose coming out of his nose and everything else. His lungs were probably as black as tar. I mean, there are just some things that people reap upon themselves. In the book of Psalms, some people, they just listen too much to the advice and counsel of men. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Cursed is the man that trusts in man and makes his flesh arm and departs, his heart departs from the Lord. I mean, who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow God in his word? Are you going to put faith in God in his word? Or are you going to be constantly listening to what man has to say with his advice and his opinion? Let me tell you what God thinks about the wisdom of men. In this one place, there are many. Here's what he says about the wisdom of men and people that listen to it. He says, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor does he stand in the way of the sinner, nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. If you don't want to listen to the counsel of God, and you want to listen to the counsel of the ungodly, if you want to stand and do what everybody, every other ungodly person does, then you're going to reap the very thing that they're going to reap. He says the righteous man is has his delight in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He doesn't sit in front of some electronic television or computer and fill his mind constantly with all the things that the world is bringing out, which tear down and take away from what God says in his word. You do that, and you're not going to have 
the blessings of God in your life as you should. And you're only going to find that out when the tests and trials come. That you're not equipped, you're not prepared, you're not ready. And God may allow that to say to you, look, you weren't ready for that trial, were you? And yet you think you're ready for, the, for my coming? You know what I'm saying? God wants us when we're faced in difficult circumstances, if we fall flat on our face, he's not trying to embarrass us or hurt us. He's trying to say, look, you're not spiritually with it as you should be. You know, I'm an instructor at a, a local college. I, I gave a, uh, a test a week or so ago to a group. I won't get real specific. But I thought it was a relatively easy math test, but it involved fractions. And I was very disappointed that some absolutely knew, knew totally not how to deal with fractions. I mean, like converting five and three quarters of an inch over to decimals, some of the answers I were getting was, was like 0 0.236, And I, I, I had one student that came up, I had one student came up and I said, I, I don't quite understand how you got this. We got five and three quarter inches and you came up with 0.238. And he just stood there and you could tell he was very embarrassed and he, and he didn't know how to do it. And I was trying to be as nice as possible in doing it. But anyways, you know, I said, look, you've got the, the whole number five, so it has to be at least five something. And three quarter is just three parts of the second number, which would be six, divided up into four. You got three of them. I said, you got to divide the four into the three to get the 0.75. And he was getting upset. He, he was, I'm sure he was embarrassed, but he was starting to get upset. He didn't know that. He thought if he just put a couple quotation marks at the end of a number, that that would convert it over. Well, I wasn't trying to embarrass him. I actually gave him the test and said, I'm going to allow you to take these two pages over again, figure it out, and bring it to me tomorrow, tomorrow on Tuesday. I get it, and I hope he's got it. I'm trying to help him. God's trying to help us. When we go through problems, if there's something in our life that he doesn't like, you got an attitude problem with somebody. You got a tongue problem to whereby your tongue is loose in gossip and criticism. You, you have a problem that he is trying to bring forth some fruit out of your life and he's going to chide with you and admonish you to get with it, so to speak. And if you don't, if you listen to the advice of men, well, if you listen to them, they'll do all kinds of things. They'll encourage you that divorce is the only situation in a bad marriage, that abortion is the only way to save yourself from a, a future burden, having a baby out of wedlock or whatever. They'll convince you that sex outside of marriage is acceptable in our culture today. Nobody looks down upon it. You'll have people that are constantly bombarding you and tempting you to buy things when you don't have the money, so you buy it on credit, and then when you end up buying on credit, you end up getting in debt to whereby you can barely get yourself out. And we could go on and on, that it's okay to get involved in lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. And what you're going to do is reap the curse because you're listening. You're listening to the counsel, the ungodly. You're standing in the way of the sinner. And you are seating in the seat of the scornful 
by taking God's word and saying, well, I just don't believe that. Just because a person says, I just don't believe that when it comes to the Bible doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just that you have an attitude problem and you don't want to change. And if you don't change, clearly Paul and others have said it throughout the word of God, that if we don't want to change, then we're going to reap what we sow. All of God's promises are conditioned. And I'd like you to turn over to Psalm 33. All of God's promises carry with it conditions. And if we don't want to meet the condition, then if we're not receiving an answer from the throne, maybe God is waiting on us to fulfill the responsibilities that he puts upon that promise. You know that from raising kids. So what is it? Well, look at a few places. I believe one of the things that we need to focus on is growing in the fear of the Lord. So if you look at Psalm 33 and verse 13, Psalm 33, 13 says, The Lord looketh, the Lord looketh from heaven, and he beholds all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their works. And there's no king saved by the multitude of a horse. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. But listen to verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and he is our shield. So he says, come boldly to the throne of grace for help in time of need. The question is, he says, I, my eye is upon them that fear me. Do we have the fear of the Lord working in our heart? Do you, what is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, I'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 1. There are many other places. I'll read real quickly Psalm 103 and verse 17. I've got that up here. Did I change screens on? Oh, I got ahead of myself. Psalm 103 and verse 17. I may just give you the scepter. Anyways, Psalm 103 and verse 17. He says, The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto his children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments, to do them. In other words, there's a condition that is there. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord is us learning what God says and then putting that into practice and living it. It is, as James says in chapter 1, it is being a hearer of the word and then being a doer of the word. If we're a hearer of the word and we don't do the word, James says you're entering into self-deception. You deceive yourself. 
You think everything's going to be hunky-dory and fine, but you're deceiving yourself because God's going to hold us accountable for what we hear. Listen to Proverbs 1. You want to know what the fear of the Lord is? Solomon tells us in various places of the word. In, so in Proverbs chapter 1, he says, The proverb of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction and perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, equity, to give wisdom, subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase in learning, and a man of understanding will attain unto wise, wise counsels. To understand Proverbs and the interpretation and the words of the wise and their dark sayings. And then he tells you what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, it is starting to receive knowledge and it's continuing to grow with your knowledge and understanding of the word. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want to go any farther. We're talking about Christians. They don't want to go any farther than John 3.16. They don't want to go any farther into the word. They start arguing and saying, well, that's just your opinion. I'm under grace. Don't put those burdens on me. And on and on. I've heard all of that for the last 40-some years I've been in the ministry. I've heard it all. The bottom line is, if you study the word of God, you're going to find clearly that in Ephesians 4, he set in the church a ministry that was for the purpose of equipping the saints for their ministry to bring them unto the place of maturity and perfection. There's no, there is no question about it unless people just are stubborn and don't want to mature and grow. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then over to verse 20, if you read here, he says, Wisdom cries without. She utters her voice in the street. She cries in the cheap place of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the city. She utters her words saying, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity, shallowness, and scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hating knowledge? Turn at my reproof. Behold, I'll pour out my spirit unto you. I'll make known my words unto you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regards. You've said it not, all my counsel. You want nothing to do with my reproof? Then I will laugh at your calamity and I will mock when your fear cometh. Come on. He's saying, I'm not going to answer your prayer. If you don't want to listen and put forth an effort, to put into practice what I say, then we're going to have a little time out here. And just like with your family, for example, if you've got a son or daughter that doesn't want to mature and grow, and parents were admonished not to be overbearing and difficult, but we look for ways sometimes to try to wake up our kids that this kind of behavior is not acceptable. We take away privileges, right? You're not going to get the car keys. I'm going to take away, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, I raised seven kids. So there's a place to whereby this is the same principle that God uses toward us. 
And we're raising a question, why do we sometimes not get answers to prayers as we should? And it's simply because we're not maturing and growing in the Lord as we should. I'd like you to turn over to Psalm chapter 34. I could keep going in Job 28, 28, if you want to look that up on your own. He speaks there about how the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil and the evil way. But I want to get to a certain point here where I can uh, continue to build on the foundation I was talking about last week. So if you look at Psalm 34, this is a song that we sing. And I want you to think about it. I want you to get this in your heart so the next time we sing it, it isn't just a nice song. In Psalm chapter 34, and verse 7, listen to what he says here. He says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about, then fear him and deliver him. We sing that song. I won't stand up here and sing it, but you know the song well enough. You know what I'm talking about. The angel of the Lord encampeth. I said I wouldn't sing it. Encampeth round about them that fear him. What did he, what did he say? The angel of the Lord encampeth round about and delivers him. No, this is what he said. The angel of the Lord dwells around us, camps around us, stays around us, and he delivers us. He didn't say that. He said, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about. Don't take the condition out. Them that fear him. And he says he delivers them. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. How do we taste and see? By determining that when we hear something that God is using his ministry, say to us that we're going to pray about it, we're going to meditate upon it, we're going to get it into our heart, and if we know that God is talking to us about that. See, when you're chastened of the Lord, and you're praying about it, and you're asking the Lord, Lord, am I, is something, am I doing something wrong way? Am I somehow displeasing you? you got a conscience. You'll know by your conscience if you're doing something right or wrong. And what God wants you to do then is repent and put forth an effort to not misuse grace and start walking in a different direction. You do that, then you just walk it out. God will take away the chastening. People ask me, how do you deal with the chastening of the Lord? You walk it out. You repent, you ask for forgiveness, you repent and you walk it out. But if you don't repent and you don't change, then it may get worse before it gets better. I mean, God loves you, and he's got a purpose in mind. He wants you to, to, to change. I could use some illustrations, but it's the way you raise, same way that you raise your children. So he says here, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. Now, I think I've laid the foundation of what that means. So let's talk about the angel of the Lord. Let's talk about angels. Let's talk about what exactly the Bible says concerning angels. I mean, in Hebrews chapter 1, if you turn over there and read it with me, Paul says several times here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, he talks about angels. Do you believe in angels? I do. Well, what are they like? Do they have wings? 
What do they look like? Have we ever seen them? Do they always cling to us? Are they with every human being that comes along? What does the Bible say about angels? I mean, maybe if you're a little more conscious about angels, you might be a little more careful with your Christian walk. Hebrews chapter 1, Paul, of course, here is emphasizing that we've got something better than in the Old Testament. And so he gets into how that we've got a better sacrifice, a better priesthood, and on and on. And he starts out by talking about how that we have Jesus as our Messiah. God who in sundry times and divers manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and by whom he also made the world. I mean, we've got, uh, we have inspired scripture in the Old Testament that's been given to us by the prophets and our, and our forefathers, and it's all inspired. But we've got a better revelation in Christ. That's the New Testament. We've got a better revelation. So that's what Paul's saying. So he's talking about Jesus. He says, verse 4, he was made so much better than the angels as he hath obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said in any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he saith, Let all the angels of God worship him. How many angels are there? And of the angels, he said, who maketh his angels spirits of his ministers, a flame of fire. Under the Son of Man, he says, thy throne, O God, forever, is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness. And it goes, I'll skip a little bit, and then he goes on down to verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all Ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Absolutely. They are being sent forth from the throne of God for us to protect us, deliver us. And we'll, we'll get into the depth of all the different things that they're shown to do. But God the Father, God the Son is sending forth angels to minister on our behalf. And yet, if we're not, I believe sincerely, if we're not putting forth an effort to mature and grow in the fear of the Lord, maybe we're not getting the protection we should. Maybe things aren't working the way that they should. Maybe the angels of God are being held back. Is that possible? Could God actually be holding back and telling some angels that they cannot? They're not to help us in this situation. That I'm going to let the hedge down and I'm going to allow Satan to afflict to try to wake up my child because they've become complacent and lukewarm and I've got a purpose for them and I want that purpose to grow. I'm not going to make the nest any bigger so they can sit around in the basement and watch television. I'm going to kick them out of the nest. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not, I, I'm not trying to put a heavy burden on us, but I'm trying to get you to see that when we say that God is going to be there for us, 
He may be using angels in a lot of ways, and are we in some ways hindering their work from coming forth? In Psalm 91 and verse 10, and it's down at the bottom of the screen there, Bev. In Psalm 91 and verse 10, and I'm just having fun with you. Listen to what he says. Psalm 91, 10. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all their ways. This is what the devil was throwing at Jesus when he had him up on a, on a pinnacle of the temple. He said, jump. Just jump. The angels will take care of you. And the Lord said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Get thee behind me. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all their ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot upon a stone. That word keep, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. That word keep is shamar in Hebrew. And that word means protective hedge. Isn't that interesting? I mean, the book of Job talks about how that Satan wanted to attack Job. And he's, God pointed him out. And what is it that he said? He said, I can't attack Job. you got a hedge about him. And God said, I'm going to let the hedge down. You can attack him, his family, and his health, but you can't kill him. You can only go so far. And God allowed that hedge to come down. Now, Job wasn't being chastened. Job did not reap what he sowed. Job was, Job was under a test and trial of his faith. We'd be foolish to join Job's friends and accuse him of sin in his life when he was suffering hardship because that, that wasn't the reason why that he was suffering. But I want to go back to the other. These angels are sent forth for a variety of reasons. Without turning there, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. Well, we could turn there real quick, but I got a few things I want to say. In Galatians 1, Paul's talking to the Galatians there because he had, they had been delivered the gospel and it was a, the justification by faith. And they had received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But now they were turning away from being led by the Holy Spirit and going back into the things of Judaism. And that's they were putting themselves in, back under the law in various ways and not getting into that deeper revelation like in regard to circumcision. So Paul makes a statement in Galatians 1.8. He says, Though we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which is preached unto you, let him be accursed. Can angels preach? Can angels teach us something? Can angels speak to us about something? Did they ever do that in the Old Testament? Did they? Yeah. I mean, I can think of a few times without, I'm running out of time, but it seems to me two of them came along and told a lot <laughs> to, to get out. Yeah, there's a lot in the Bible that people don't talk about that angels are being used by God to minister to people and not just Old Testament, New Testament and on and on. I quoted a few things last week, but the screen went down. So I'll, pro I'll probably hold off on that this morning, but let me just quickly kind of summarize a few thoughts and then next week we'll talk about Seraphims and cherubims and angels. What exactly are they? How do they, how do they minister? 
And if they are angels anyways, camped about us that fear him, shouldn't we be more diligent in being faithful to what we're being taught so that we don't lose that protective power? I, <clears throat> I happen to read, uh, I think it was early this morning or last night, I'm on a, um, a blog where camper people, are. it's an RV site where they share things. And one caught my attention, I think it was last night. And a woman, she got out there and she said, praise Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And so I'm like, whoa, you don't see that very often. Usually it's my refrigerator doesn't work. Anybody want to help? But she was out there praising God, praising Jesus. And she said, they kept smelling something. They didn't know what it was, but they smelled it for a couple days and then she said the Lord showed them that they had a, uh, a plastic tarp that was catching on fire because it was rubbed up against a hot light and so it protected them from getting smoke in the camper and the camper burning down and she made the comment she said oh thank you Jesus my guardian angel was there to wake us up and show us directly where it was at because it was not an obvious thing it was like in the bottom of their camper where there was a light like they call it a basement but it was catching this plastic on fire showed a picture of it had great big burn holes all over the place but she was praising god for her guardian angel and there were a couple others that were out there as well a propane tank took off like a jet on fire and they were also being very thankful you might be surprised how many times the lord has protected you in various ways with a, with a guardian angel that you just never even stop to think about. So in, so Paul makes a statement. Let me give you a couple things and I'll start to wrap this up real quick. First of all, what does the Bible say about angels and how they minister on our behalf? And let me give you about five minutes more. Number one, this is a quote from a minister that was very well known back in the 50s and 60s. He's now home to be with the Lord. So I'll quote him. He made the statement here. This, this is by Gordon Lindsay, by the way. <clears throat> and he said, <clears throat> excuse me, angels are the princes of heaven that stand before God, <clears throat> stand before God, who minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. I read that and I thought, I can, I can agree with that. They're spirit beings not disembodied spirits. When a person dies, we're told they go to be in the presence of the Lord. They're given some kind of a temporary body, sometimes referred to as a robe, and they don't yet receive their glorified body. That won't come forth until the resurrection. But they're given some kind of a temporary body. But when a, when a Christian dies and they go to be with the Lord, they don't become an angel. Angels are not disembodied spirits. But they're spirit beings that God created who resemble men in appearance. And that's clearly taught in the Word. They have bodies, but they aren't physical bodies. Yet it seems that they have the power to appear as men at times. I mean, listen to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. Here we go again with the Apostle Paul. Hebrews chapter 13 and the second verse, this is where he's kind of kind of summer, kind of doing a quick 
summary of what he's taught in the book, but he says, let brotherly love continue, verse 1. Then he says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So he's saying that a stranger, an individual, a person, and then a human body that you're looking at as an individual, he says they could be an angel. So an angel can take on a <clears throat> take on and appear as men at some time. Look at Acts chapter ten. <clears throat> Excuse me. I may have to get me a cup of coffee real quick and try to clear that <laughs> clear that up. Oh no, I'm almost done, Elliot. That's all right. I've got one up here. In Acts chapter 10, here's Cornelius' household. That's all right, Don. All right, go ahead. I thought he was going back there to get in that car and start playing music on it. All right, let me give you Acts chapter 10 real quick. This is uh, the story of Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who loved the Lord, and God was going to use him to wake Peter up and the apostles that the gospel was now going to be spread not just to the Jew, but also to the Gentiles. So a couple quick verses. In Acts chapter 10, he receives a vision of an angel. And the angel, like in verse 3, said, I saw in a vision about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, and when he looked on him, he, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon Peter, whose surname is Peter, who lodges with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea, and he'll tell thee what thou ought to know. And the angel which spoke to Cornelius was departed, and he called two of his household servants and sent him to go see Peter. So we pick this up now in verse 30. Verse 30 says, Cornelius said, this is where Peter is saying, I better back up a little bit. Verse 29 says, Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying as soon as I was sent for, and I ask therefore for what intent you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, this is Peter asked that, now Cornelius is replying, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, thy alms are had in remembrance in this sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter, and he is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, and on and on. So what appeared before him was a man. Did he have wings and all that? I don't believe angels have wings, but we'll get into that in a little bit later on. There are other spiritual beings that are referred to with wings, but I don't find wings on angels in the Bible. But we'll see. I'm not fully, I'm not suggesting I know everything goes on in that regard. But the point is that these angels can sometimes appear as a human, or they might appear in their glory. Uh, in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, we have an illustration here where one appears to Daniel, and Daniel describes him as a man, 
But then Daniel goes on to describe him in his glory. Um, in Daniel chapter 10, real quick, Daniel's praying about a different in different revelations that he's received. He says, in those days, verse 2, I was mourning three weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh or wine into my mouth. I didn't anoint myself at all till the whole three weeks were fulfilled. And the fourth twenty. Four and twentieth day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittakel, and I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man, man, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Ophaz. His body was like beryl, his face as the appearance of lightning, his eyes as lamps of fire, his arms and feet like the color to polished brass, and the voice of its words was like a voice of a multitude. So he's giving us a description there of him, but it isn't the description of a man. So they can appear as a man, but they don't have to appear as a man. They may not even appear at all. They may be something that is invisible. But one thing I can tell you, and I'll stop after this, Matthew 26, 52, they're ready to protect. They're ready to deliver. They're ready to help. And if we're meeting the conditions that God has laid out in his word and our sins are under the blood, and we're, strive, we're trying to mature and grow and run that race that is set before us. I believe we can call upon him for help. I believe we can petition the Lord in Jesus' name. And when we ask for help, I'm not telling you that we can't tell him how to work it out. But I believe many times that he works it out to send forth his angels into a spiritual warfare that we we may not fully comprehend. We're in a warfare. Amen. And Satan would very easily defeat us and destroy us and overcome us if it were not for angelic help. I'm just thinking of one particular verse and then I'll close. This is just at the time that Jesus was arrested. He, they come for him and Peter gets upset, pulls out the sword, whacks off Malchus's ear, Jesus gives him a new ear and all of that. And then Jesus makes a statement to Peter and admonishes him. He says in Matthew 26 and verse 52, I'll back up a little bit. Verse 51, here's, here's Judas, verse 49. He forthwith came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. That's Judas, you know. Hugged him, kissed him, put the knife in his back spiritually. And Jesus said, Friend, where art thou come? And they came, and then came they and laid hands on Jesus, and they took him. And behold, one of them, which was with Jesus, stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck a servant's high priest's ear, and smote it off. And Jesus said unto him, Listen to this. Put up again thy sword, unto its place for they that take the sword will perish with the sword thinkest thou not that I could not pray to my father and he presently give me more than 12 legions of angels 72,000 angels 
could have been dispatched from the throne to deliver Jesus. But he goes on to say, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be? He offered himself up to death. But he he made the statement there, I could ask my father. Of course, we know the deeper principle here. But he still said, I could ask my father and get 72,000 angels to protect me in this situation. I'm not afraid of the future. I'm not afraid of persecution that might hit this country. We've got a heavenly host that is surrounding us and taking care of us and will provide for us and will protect us. That's clearly taught in the Word of God, if you want to believe it. And we've got to learn to quit limiting our life to what we can see and feel and taste and touch. God is on the throne and he is ruling and reigning. He is high above all thrones. And he has a heavenly host, seraphims and cherubims and angels, that he will send forth to minister on our behalf. Well, i got to stop. But I want to pick up on that next week, and I'm not going to go through all the introduction I did this morning. I'm going to pick right up on this, and I want to dig into this, because I think if we can get this in our heart, maybe it'll help to increase our faith in not what we can see and feel and taste and touch, but in what we can't see. That's what faith is for. And it'll encourage us to... Be faithful to the Lord and continue to grow and mature and grow and mature in regard to the fear of the Lord. Father, there's a lot that you've given us in your word about angels as well as some fallen angels and and other things too. But too often we focus on the negative. We don't focus on the positive. So I ask you to lead us and guide us in this church into a deeper understanding of these things that we can choose to believe in and believe that you will be there, send them forth to protect us, deliver us, instruct us in whatever way you choose to use them. But help us to understand these things, and we ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless, and we'll build on this next week. Have a, have a good week.